For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this morning is The Heralds of God. This is part two, Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 21. So welcome back. We are uh, continuing our work this morning together through Paul's epistle to the church at Rome, and we have arrived this morning at the end of chapter 10. Chapter 10 is in the midst of a section of Paul's letter, chapters 9 through 11, wherein Paul has taken it upon himself to address the unbelief and apostasy of a vast majority of his Jewish countrymen. In remarkable contrast to the unbelief and apostasy of Israel, the Gentiles are pouring into the, into the church through repentant faith in Jesus Christ. There has been a rejection of the gospel on the part of the Jews, and there has been a reception of the gospel on the part of the Gentiles. To borrow the language from Ephesians chapter 2, uncircumcised Gentiles, right? aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of the promise, those far off, having no hope and without God in this world, they have been brought near now in the blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible says, the Bible describes in multiple places that Paul's Jewish objectors have responded to this fact, this truth with envy. That's going to be important in a consideration of our text this morning. The Jews responded with jealousy. The Jews responded with anger. The Jews responded with envy. Matthew chapter 27, verse 18, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees delivered Jesus Christ over to be crucified because of envy. Acts chapter 13, verse 45, when the whole city of Antioch came together to hear the word of God preached, the Jews saw the multitudes and they were filled with envy, blaspheming, contradicting, opposing the work of the gospel. When the Jews heard the preaching of the gospel, they were offended. You remember the martyrdom of Stephen on the Temple Mount. Stephen is preaching the gospel to them. The Jews responded by gnashing their teeth at him and rushing upon him and stoning him to death on the Temple Mount. The Jews responded with envy. The Jews refused to acknowledge their sin. They refused to acknowledge their need of a savior. They refused to acknowledge their need for the person and work of Jesus Christ. But when the Gentiles heard the word of the gospel, Acts 13, 48, the Bible says they were glad. <laughs> they glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as been appointed to eternal life believed. As many as had been appointed to eternal life, they believed. Now, Paul's Jewish objectors, it was like they were sitting on top of a hill overlooking the city of Nineveh <laughs> and like Jonah angry with God, that God would show the nations mercy, that God would show the nations grace. In other words, what were the Jews doing sitting on top of that hill overlooking the nations, so to speak, they were showing contempt for the grace and mercy of God. They were showing contempt for the mercy of God and saving a people for his own name out of the nations. They despised the nations and they thought it wrong of God to save them. Rather than responding with repentance and faith, they responded with envy. 
They responded with jealousy. They responded with anger. I want you to sit that on the back burner for a moment as we work through our text together. We want to recall that to our minds in a moment. The gospel of God's free justification of sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, it was seen by the Jews to be a threat. That gospel that Paul preached, the gospel that we preach, that word of faith preached throughout the the Bible was seen to be a threat. It was seen to be as seditious. The gospel that Paul preached was dangerous. Rather than embrace the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, the Jews stumbled over the stumbling stone. They believed themselves to be righteous. They believed themselves to be righteous through works of the law. And Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Whoever believes on him will never be put to shame, Jew and Gentile alike, for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. As we've seen in part one on this text, we are to understand that faith-filled call for salvation to be the last in a series of logical steps. Paul explains that to us beginning in verse 14. Calling upon the name of the Lord to be saved, calling upon the name of the Lord in faith does not occur in a vacuum. Verse 14, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they are sent? So to call on Jesus Christ with a genuine biblical justifying faith requires knowledge. How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? You can take the little of out of there. That's not in the text. How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? Paul's not referring referring merely to hearing nice things about Jesus Christ. Paul is referring to hearing the word of Jesus Christ himself in the preaching of the gospel. In the testimony of his apostles, from the testimony of scriptures, in the testimonies of his prophets, in the testimony of his heralds, in his witnesses of the truth. We hear the words of Christ in those who testify of Christ. So in other words, it's not a blind faith. It's not a leap of ignorance. It's not a leap into the dark. It's not some mystical experience of ignorance. Faith comes with knowledge. Someone walks down an aisle in a church because they hear, quote unquote, a gospel message. They get to the front. They pray a prayer. They believe themselves to be saved. You follow up and say, well, why are you saved? Or why did you go, why did you go down front? Why did you pray that prayer? Because I don't want to go to hell. Well, what is it that you believe? I believe I don't want to go to hell. <laughs> I believe I want to be forgiven of my sin. In other words, who are you trusting in? What are you trusting in? What is the content of your faith? Faith is not devoid of knowledge. Faith is not devoid of content. It's not an ignorant leap into the darkness. We have an object of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are to hear his words, his voice in the message of his gospel, in the message of his heralds, in the message of scripture. We're to hear him on the pages of the Bible. It is the word of truth. It is the word of the gospel that is to be apprehended in the mind, that is to be embraced in the heart, and it is to be embraced and believed upon in faith that leads to salvation. John chapter 10, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, Jesus says, and they follow me. Paul raises the question, how will someone hear the voice of the good shepherd 
without someone to bear witness to his word. How are they going to hear unless there's a preacher? And the word there for preacher is kerux. The one who is a kerux, keruso, he proclaims, he heralds. It is an authoritative proclamation of the king. That is the role, the job of a herald. It is to proclaim authoritatively the message of the king. The herald is officially sent to proclaim his message. Christ is heard in the gospel when the gospel is proclaimed by the heralds of Jesus Christ. It's only good news if you hear it. It's only good news if you know it. Only good news if you understand it. The point is this. The point is this. That God has appointed a means through which men may come to a knowledge of the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. And that means is the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel is the ordinary and effectual means whereby sinners are brought to faith in Jesus Christ. The preaching of the gospel is the preaching of his word by those who have been commissioned to the task. Men will never call upon Jesus Christ for salvation unless they believe in him. And they will never believe upon him if they never hear from him. We have been given that commission, brothers and sisters. We have been appointed messengers. We've been given a great commission. We must be faithful in it. How will they hear without a messenger? How will they hear without a preacher? How will one preach to them unless someone is sent to them? We must be faithful in the great commission. We're here on earth, basically, essentially to do two things. We're to sustain the worship of our God, and we are to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. There will be some who hear that message. There will be some who read, some who understand, some who heed. Sufficient knowledge of his word will lead to faith in the heart. And from that faith, they will call upon the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. And then, brothers and sisters, there will be those who do not hear. A quarter of the world's population has never heard the gospel. A quarter of the world's population has never heard the gospel. Millions more sit under a false gospel. Millions more sit under error. I spent more than half my life in a church and never heard the gospel. And yet others still reject the voice of the preacher that they hear. They have in that rejection, they have in actuality rejected the voice of Christ himself. If they do not turn at the testimony of his witnesses, if they do not turn at the testimony of his prophets and his apostles, a judgment will be made against them. They will perish in the way. And listen, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for them. So it's here in our text that Paul then refers to a glorious promise made by God. And it's a glorious promise made by God to exiles in Babylon. And it's a glorious promise of restoration. It's a glorious promise of God calling himself, calling to himself a people out of the nations, a people for the glory of his own name in the preaching of the gospel, in the preaching of his heralds. And that promise was given in Isaiah 52. As his people languish in exile for their sin, for their rebellion, for their idolatry, God promises to send his heralds to proclaim the good news of peace and salvation. 
God promises to visit his people with grace and mercy. And in that day, Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. What a beautiful message. How beautiful are the feet of those who come over the mountains, as it were, to bring that message. But think with me for a moment. Think with me now. The saving purposes of God and the words of the prophet in the book of Isaiah both look far beyond the deliverance of an exiled people in Babylon. Isaiah sees a far greater deliverance on the horizon. Isaiah sees a greater deliverance, a deliverance that is secured by the person and work of the Messiah. A deliverance that God himself would secure through the work of his own son. And he speaks of coming heralds, not merely proclaiming liberty to the captives in Babylon, but proclaiming liberty to the captives in their sin. Proclaiming liberty to the nations who put their faith and trust in God's own son. Not simply from captivity, but a greater deliverance that terminates upon the enthronement of the Lord God over the nations in the person of his own son, our King, Jesus Christ. It's a prophecy. It's a promise that is captured in the words of Isaiah in the Old Testament that points us forward to God's ultimate purposes in redemptive history. God's ultimate purposes in the gospel. God's ultimate purposes through the promised Messiah. God had promised a restoration that would be fulfilled in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. For every sinner who hears that good news proclaimed by heralds of the gospel, that good news should be received with joy and rejoicing in the heart. It is the best news, right? It's grand news, great news. It should be received with great joy. The only reasonable response, the only rational response of a sinner is to turn from sin to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. To reject that message, to reject that good news is to be unbelieving, is to be irrational, is to be entirely unreasonable. It is a display of man's depravity, right? To turn a blind eye or a deaf ear to God's promise of grace and mercy in the gospel. You can be forgiven of your sin. You can become a citizen of the kingdom under the rule and reign of the king by turning from your sin and putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Despite the irrationality of that response, despite the sheer wickedness of it, the sheer rebellion of it, the running of the Lord's heralds to the nation of Israel was met with unbelief. Astonishingly so, staggeringly so, they turned a deaf ear to the gospel. The running of the Lord's heralds to the nations today is largely met with unbelief. There are many of you here this morning that the preaching of the gospel has landed upon you. With unbelief, you have yet to turn from your sin to trust in Christ. After hearing it over and over again, the Lord reaches out his hands to you, rising up early to preach the gospel to you. And yet you sit in defiant and rebellious unbelief and disobedience to the word of the gospel. And you will perish in the way. And it will be more tolerable 
in that day for the land of Sodom than it will be for you. Isaiah says, verse 16, not all obeyed the gospel. Not all have obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? To those who live under a certain fearful expectation of a fiery judgment that will devour God's adversaries, God has declared a way of salvation. It is this salvation that he has declared through the mouths of his heralds. Eyewitness testimony. God also bearing witness himself by them, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles, with gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his will. He has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And he has given assurance of this to all by raising that man from the dead. And yet many, many sit there in unbelief. There's a certain astonishment in Isaiah's words, Lord, who has believed our report? As if to say so many turn away in unbelief. The news of that salvation should have been received with great joy. And yet Paul looks at the unbelief of his fellow Jews and he says they have not all obeyed the gospel. And with Isaiah, Lord, who has believed our report? There's a sense of incredulity in the question. There's a sense of astonishment. Really? Why do they not turn? Why do they continue to live in their sin? Why do they continue down a path that leads them to death? Why? Why do they not turn and put their faith and trust in God's Messiah? Why do they not believe the gospel? Mere hearing is not enough. They must obey the gospel. They must repent and believe. And the unbeliever, by definition, the unbeliever has turned away in his unbelief. It's in Isaiah 53, on the heels of that statement, right? That Isaiah explains the answer. And the answer is astonishing. God's promised salvation would be accomplished by the substitutionary suffering of the Messiah. In Isaiah 53, verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Jews have turned a blind eye, a hard heart, and a deaf ear to the heralds of God. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Many today, maybe some of you here, have done the same. It leads Paul to conclude then, in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. There by the word of Christ, in many of your translations. We hear the voice of our Lord Jesus Christ in the preaching of his word. And notice, notice, faith does not come merely by natural or general revelation. It's by that revelation alone that men are rendered without excuse before God in Romans chapter one, but natural revelation, general revelation alone cannot save. Natural revelation, general revelation does not reveal the way of salvation. General revelation does not reveal the gospel. 
Genuine faith, justifying faith as a means for salvation only comes through special revelation, the very word of Christ. Now, from the, from the text of the Old Testament, Paul demonstrates that this all was God's plan, God's determined decree, God's intended plan of salvation from the beginning. God's word has not failed leading God to go to plan B. God's word is being fulfilled. And this was God's plan from the beginning. As we've seen, God is sovereign over all things whatsoever that come to pass. We need to stop arguing with that truth. The Bible says, Ephesians chapter one, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Are you going to believe it or not? Then we have to justify human responsibility to that fact in scripture, right? God is sovereign over all things whatsoever that come to pass. In divine providence and with divine power, God is executing his decreed will for the glory of his own name. That's biblical, that's true. But now... Paul points again to the Old Testament to demonstrate that the responsibility for Israel's rejection of the gospel is their own fault. There are two sides then to that same truth. Two sides, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Verse uh, verse 18, Paul begins to address that point now regarding Israel. Verse 18, but I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Of course they have, right? With verse 18, Paul returns to the complaints raised by his Jewish interlocutors, his Jewish objectors. The Jews didn't have sufficient revelation to come to the so-called gospel that Paul was preaching. The Jews are saying, well, they didn't have enough information to be able to turn to Christ in faith. Paul says they absolutely did. In fact, quoting Psalm 19, their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. So turn with me to Psalm 19. For his response to the objection that the Jews didn't have enough revelation, Paul turns to Psalm 19. And if you look at this quote in its context from Psalm 19, you'll realize that David here in Psalm 19 is referring to general revelation. The knowledge that we have of God given to us in creation. Look at Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. What is David referring to? Referring to general revelation, the knowledge that we have of God in creation, right? Verse two, day unto day utters speech, night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. David's referring to general revelation, Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl may look into the heavens and see a wondrous display of the glory and power of God. Amen. We can look all around us and see a glorious display of God's majesty, God's infinite wisdom, God's power in the things that that he has made. Well, Paul refers to this passage in Romans chapter 10, not to describe the prevalence of general revelation given to all men, but rather he uses this text as an analogy. Paul uses this text from Psalm 19 as an analogy to describe the prevalence of special revelation given to Israel, given to the Jews. Paul is making the point that there has been an overwhelming abundance of revelation 
that has been given to the Jews. It was everywhere around them, Paul is saying. In other words, God has not been miserly in his grace to Israel. God has given them an abundance of revelation. It's as though you could look into the heavens and see the glory of God. Israel was surrounded by the glory of God. Israel was surrounded. They had the very oracles of God given to them by God himself. Think with me. They heard his voice in the wilderness. They saw his cloud by day. They saw the pillar of fire by night. They saw the cloud descend upon the tabernacle of meeting. They had his law etched with a finger of God on tablets of stone. He preserved them. He dropped manna and meat out of the heavens for them to eat. Look at all the revelation that God is, that they have been given by God. The grace and mercy of Israel to God. Uh, the grace and mercy of God to Israel. It was everywhere around them. They were his covenant people. Romans chapter nine, verse four, Paul makes the same point. It was to Israel whom pertained the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Have they not heard? Indeed they have. Absolutely they have. You see? Incidentally, God has not been miserly with you either. God has not been miserly with me. God has not been miserly. God has not been miserly in his grace and his mercy. God has not been miserly with his word. God has given us abundant cause, abundant reason. What more could he have done in his vineyard? (laughs) But then Paul, after making that point, that Israel has had an abundance of revelation, Paul turns to the testimony of Moses. Verse 19, but I say, did Israel not know? Of course they did. Of course they did. Paul is answering the question. Think with me now. Paul is answering the question. Did the Jews have sufficient knowledge from the scriptures to believe upon Christ for salvation? Did they have sufficient knowledge? Could Israel claim ignorance as the reason for their rejection of Christ? Could Israel blame God for withholding it from them. Verse 19, first Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. Now, for yet another point in his case, Paul quotes the song of Moses to make his point. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32. In Deuteronomy 32, we find the song of Moses. And it's interesting, the song of Moses is quoted throughout the Bible. It's quoted frequently in the text of scripture. The song of Moses foreshadows what will become of the nation of Israel. And it's this song, it's in this song, speaking of the future of Israel, that God gives them a very stern warning. Now, the song begins by recounting how good the Lord has been, how merciful, how kind, how compassionate the Lord has been to Israel. Look at verse 10 with me, for example. Verse 10, he found him in a desert land and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness, and he encircled him. 
He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, as an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. So the Lord alone led him. There was no foreign God with him. Tremendous blessing, tremendous mercy, tremendous grace. What was Israel's response to God's blessing? They forgot the Lord their God. Look at verse 15. With Jeshurun, Jeshurun is a name that means upright ones or seeing ones. We could think of Jeshurun in this context as consecrated ones or sanctified ones. These are those who have been given knowledge. How have they been given knowledge? They've been given the very oracles of God. God has preached to them through his prophet Moses, has given them his law. So these are seeing ones. They are knowing ones. They are upright ones. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. They rebelled. You grew fat. You grew thick. You are obese, God says. Then he, Jeshurun, forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. There's that reference to rock again. Do you see? They provoked him, the one who made them, the one who blessed them, the one who took them to himself. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods, which are no gods at all with abominations. They provoked him, the one who has blessed them, the one who has made them, they provoked him to anger. So verse 19, they forsook the God who fathered them and they turned to worthless idols. So Israel provoked God to jealousy. Israel provoked God to anger. And so what does God do in his justice? Verse 19, when the Lord saw it, he spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be. That hiding of God's face is a hiding of revelation. It's not a disclosing, a free revelation. It's a measured revelation. Do you see? And he does this for they are, verse 20, they are a perverse generation, children in whom there is no faith. This is not a ritualistic religion. This is a religion of the heart. This is a religion of faith. Do you see? Even for the Jews in the wilderness, verse 21. And here's our quote. They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols, but I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will provoke them to envy. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. You see how envy burns with jealousy and anger. Four, verse 22, a, a fire is kindled in my anger and shall burn to the lowest hell. It shall consume the earth with her increase, set on fire the foundations of the mountains. What is God telling them? What is God warning them? God says, you provoke me to jealousy by what is not God. I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. This is what we call talionic justice. Lex talionis, representative 
description of Lex Talionis is an eye for an eye. The severity of the punishment is in direct proportion to the severity of the offense. Why is hell eternal? In part, because the severity of the punishment is in direct proportion to the severity of the offense. The nature of the punishment is in direct proportion to the nature of the offense. Lex Talionis. God is describing the circumstances under which he himself will act with retributive justice. We don't like retributive justice today, right? It's no longer sin. It's a mental health issue, right? It's no longer justice. It's rehabilitation. (laughs) It's no longer justice. It's social justice. We don't like retribution. We don't like retributive justice. But God says, I'm going to respond in kind. Is God just? Absolutely, he's just. Is God righteous? Absolutely, he's righteous. He's righteous in his exercise of justice. God says, I will respond in kind. When Israel provokes God to anger by pursuing false idols, God says, I'm going to provoke Israel to anger by pursuing other nations and other peoples. You have provoked me, God says, to anger by choosing other gods. I will provoke you to anger by taking from you the blessings of my covenant and giving those blessings to others. Paul told the Jews at Antioch, since you reject the word of God and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. So in the song of Moses, Deuteronomy 32, there is a prophecy. It's a prophecy of God turning to the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And he does so in part for the purpose of a moving rebellious and idolatrous Israel to jealousy and from jealousy for some of them from jealousy to repentance and faith. What is Paul's point in reminding them of these texts? What's Paul's point? Is Paul trying to heap guilt on them? Yes, he is. (laughs) Yes, he is. Why? Because he wants them to be saved. My heart's desire for Israel is that they might be saved. Paul is in anguish over the condition, the lost condition of his countrymen. He wants them to be saved. So what does he do? He heaps upon them the guilt that is rightfully theirs under the law so that they might see their sinful condition. They might see their rejection of the Savior and so that they might turn in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ and be saved. Paul wants them to be saved. They're going to react humble or hostile. Paul wants them saved. So Paul then, again, testifying to them from the text that they themselves see as authoritative, Paul turns to the testimony of Isaiah again in verse 20 then. Romans chapter 10, verse 20. Continuing his case, Paul in verse 20 says, but Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Turn with me to Isaiah 64. Isaiah 64. And again, when Paul quotes the Old Testament, he's bringing forward 
all of the context of each of those quotes to make his point, right? These, these, this context is all coming together for Paul to make his point to a, a belligerent people. They knew their Old Testament scriptures. They believed the Old Testament to be authoritative, and Paul is teaching them from the Old Testament. Isaiah 64. In a prayer to God that begins in Isaiah 63, here in Isaiah 64, the Jews plead with God for deliverance. They are in misery, and they plead with God for salvation. They have fallen under God's judgment. And listen, they have fallen under God's judgment for exactly the reasons and in exactly the way that God said that they would in Deuteronomy 32 in the Song of Moses and in many other places. So God then is going to remind them of his judgment, even as he determines to show great mercy, great grace, because God delights to show mercy. He's going to remind them of his judgment. In Isaiah 64, their prayer is an earnest prayer. They are in misery. Verse one, oh God, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, God, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down. The mountains shook at your presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you and your ways. You are indeed angry for we have sinned. In these ways we continue and we need to be saved. That's a fervent prayer, isn't it? Israel pleads, pleads with God for deliverance. Verse 12, will you continue to keep silent, O God? Will you continue to afflict us? God answers Israel. And he answers Israel with a reminder in Isaiah 65, a reminder of his promised judgment from the song of Moses. God says, I'll not keep silent. I'll not keep silent but I will repay. Isaiah 65, verse one. I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. Literally, I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. Right, you're what God is saying. I permitted myself to be found by those who weren't even looking for me. I said, here I am. Here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. Verse two, I have stretched out my hands all day long. Do you see the contrast between the two? Do you see the contrast? I've stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts, a people who provoke me to anger continually to my face who sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on altars of brick. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence, but will repay. Even repay into their bosom, Lex Talionis. Your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, says the Lord, who have burned incense on the mountains, and blasphemed me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosom. Retributive justice. 
despite God's promised judgment, we know that God delights to show mercy. He delights to show mercy. He delights to be gracious. He abounds in loving kindness. And for the sake of his own name, not because of anything to do with them, Right? Do you see? Not to do with, not anything to do with them. They are a perverse generation. But for the sake of his own name, God determines to spare a remnant. Look at verse eight. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster and one says, do not destroy it for a blessing is in it. So will I do for my servant's sake. Who is the servant of the Lord? In Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53, who is the servant of the Lord? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. I will do for my servant's sake. I'm going to save a remnant. I'm going to spare a remnant from Jacob that I may not destroy them all. Verse nine, I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah an heir of my mountains. My elect shall inherit it shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall be a fold of flocks in the valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. And who does that people include who have sought him? It includes the Gentiles. What's the context? What is the context? God's rebellious and idolatrous covenant people have conducted themselves exactly as God has warned them that they would. They fall under the judgment of God for their sin, a judgment that God had described to them in great detail. And now they turn and plead to God for mercy. And God reminds them of what he promised them he would do. That in that circumstance, God himself would call out from the nations a people for his name. That he would call out from Judah a remnant of those whom he had chosen. And he would take the covenant blessings that he had once bestowed upon Israel. And he would give those covenant blessings and far greater blessings to those who would seek him in the gospel of his son. God is not miserly in his blessings. He lavishes his blessing upon his covenant people. A restored covenant people through faith in the second person of the Trinity, God's own son, through faith in God, the father, God, the son, and God, the Holy spirit, a restored covenant people in a promised land, enjoying the eternal blessedness that Israel had forsaken in her sin. Think about that promised land with me. Verse 17, for behold, these are the great covenant blessings that are going to be bestowed upon God's people who put their faith and trust in his son. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. The former shall not be remembered nor come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. To those who had continuously rejected the Lord, to those whom the Lord had continuously stretched out his gracious hands, he says, essentially, the time of your mercy has come to an end. Behold, I have permitted myself to be found by a people who weren't even looking for me. The Gentiles were not seeking Christ when the gospel was preached to them. Those far off, having no hope without God in this world, were brought near. 
by the blood of Jesus Christ. That provoked envy, jealousy, anger on the part of the Jews. Romans chapter 10, verse 20. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest by those, uh, to those who did not ask for me. Paul makes the same point in Romans chapter 9, verse 30. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, they have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. Verse 21, but to Israel, he says, to those who have persisted in their idolatrous rebellion against God, to those who have rejected my heralds sent to them, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. Though they had been blessed to hear the very words of Christ through God's heralds sent to them, they rejected him. And in so doing, rejected the only hope of salvation they would ever have. With a simple reference to Moses, with a simple reference to Isaiah, those references pulling from the rich context of Israel's history, and Paul makes the point crystal clear. The Jews cannot claim ignorance. The Jews cannot blame God. <laughs> it's the country song, right? The country song, got nobody to blame but me. <laughs> the Gentiles who had none of the privileges that the Jews enjoyed, they have heard it. They have responded to the gospel in faith. Why? The grace and mercy of our God. Why haven't you obeyed the gospel message that you've heard? Why haven't you obeyed? The words of Paul aren't only intended for the Jews. You cannot claim ignorance. You cannot blame God. You cannot blame circumstances. You cannot sit there as if to presume you're waiting upon God to do some work in your heart waiting as though you're waiting for lightning to strike. When God says to you, when God stretches out his hands to you all day long in the preaching of his gospel, grace and mercy upon grace and mercy, I have given up my own son that sinners might be saved. Why will you persist in your sin? You have had sufficient revelation given to you at the preaching of his heralds. You've heard it over and over again. You've been blessed by God to have received more light in this one sermon that most will hear in their lifetime, despite the weakness of the message giver, the weakness of the messenger. You've heard the very voice of Christ from the scriptures. Why will you remain disobedient? Why do you remain contrary? Like the Jews. Why do you continue to live in your sin? Why will you continue to do so until the time of your mercy is past? Aren't you provoked to jealousy? <laughs> you see what our Christian brothers and sisters have? Don't you want that? You see their love. You see their perseverance through trial and difficulty. You see their joy. You see their gratitude. You see the blessings of God lavished, lavished, lavished upon them. 
Do you see their hope in eternal life? Not a wishful hope, a determined, resolved hope. (laughs) They know, they know. It is a determined fact that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. It is a determined fact that he will return in victory, that he will return in glory and will usher us into his heavenly kingdom where we will praise and worship him in eternity. That is a proven fact. Do you not want that hope? We have a glorious inheritance, an indescribable gift. We have his spirit indwelling us. We have riches unimaginable waiting for us. Does not that provoke you to jealousy? Do you not want that? His heralds have preached the gospel to you. You've heard enough to understand. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and be saved. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your word through which we hear the very voice of Christ on the pages of scripture. Thank you that you have spoken in times past, various ways through the prophets. Thank you that you have now in these last days spoken spoken to us through your own son. I pray that sinners would hear and believe. I pray that for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you would save. I pray for the sake of your own name, Lord that you would magnify your grace and mercy, magnify yourself in the salvation of sinners. I pray that for the glory of your own name, that you would magnify our work on this earth for the cause of your kingdom. You would magnify, glorify the spread of the gospel. May it spread quickly. May May your word run swiftly. For the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, for the sake of your own glory, we pray all these things. Good of those who would turn to you in faith. We pray these things in Christ's name. Thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.